Good morning, everyone. The kids can meet in the back for the children's sermon, and I'll invite the rest of you to join me in 1 Kings chapter 15. We will be looking to verses 1 through 24 this morning, uh, although we will also pick up a little bit of the latter part of chapter 14. You'll recall as we have been making our way through 1 Kings, a, a few chapters ago we saw the kingdom split, divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And here as we make our way through 1 Kings, we've been hearing this, this refrain of the, the story of the kings. And we're in an extended portion that speaks of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. But here there's a, there's a brief interlude. There's a section on three kings of Judah. Rehoboam in, in the end of chapter 14, and then 15, Abijam and Asa. We see in them a pattern, a pattern that will be repeated throughout the kings in Judah. There were many of those kings who indulged in idolatry, and there were a few who remained relatively faithful. This morning we'll look to those patterns and we'll see the implications of the, the contrast between two of those kings. Now, kids, as you're listening, you're going you're gonna to hear a lot of funny-sounding names and you're going to hear uh, some long passages read, but here's what I want you to listen for. I want you to listen for two of those kings that we're going to spend some time with and, and listen for what they did, but more importantly, what or who they loved. So the question I want you to think about to yourself and talk with your parents about over lunch is, what does their worship tell us about who or what they loved? And maybe, more importantly, what does it mean for us to love Jesus? As we prepare to look to this text, I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer. Father, we come to your word, and we ask for the blessing of your spirit that we might see your son, that we might love him more dearly, and that we might see him more clearly. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Friends, I'm going to break this up over our time together, so we will begin with verses 1 through 8. This is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. 
Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. He's a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. These are all phrases that we throw out oftentimes. And oftentimes when we speak them, we speak them with some sense of affection. Though there are times when we offer them in a derogatory manner. We say them because oftentimes when we look at parents... And children, we recognize that there are patterns that we pass down. There are rhythms that we follow. And so it begs a question for us today. What patterns are you passing down? What rhythms are you following from the generations before you? Are those patterns and rhythms primarily matters of of obedience, of behaviors? Or... Are they focused more primarily on the affections of the heart? Verse 3 tells us that Abijam, he walked in the sins that his father did before him. He followed this pattern, those patterns, the patterns of Rehoboam and Abijam's Father Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Rehoboam was, however, a foolish king. And it was his foolish decisions, his foolish decrees, his self-centeredness that, that led to the division in the kingdom. But the sins that Abijam walked in, that Rehoboam did, are articulated for us more fully in chapter 14, verses 22 through 24, we see them there listed, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done, for they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree, and there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations." The Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Rehoboam did those sins. Sadly, the people followed in them. I just read to you that it was the nation of Judah who did those things. And also his son after him. You, you know, our sense of Western individualism, we often like to think and oftentimes we'll say that we are an island unto ourselves. That our actions aren't really impacting anyone else. Their actions aren't really impacting myself. We say that oftentimes because we don't want to think that we could impact others. We just want to be left to ourselves. Scripture, however, gives us a different framework. It's a framework that we see Throughout Scripture, it's a framework that we 
actually see in our own lives. It's a covenantal framework. That covenantal framework says that we are not an island to ourselves, but that our lives matter. They impact others. They impact the community around us. They, can, they impact the generations after us. It's the covenantal framework of, of Scripture. It's the covenantal framework of our lives. And we see it in Rehoboam's leadership, his leadership failures, his, his obedience failures that impacted the nation around him. They followed him, but it also impacted his son, who likewise followed in those sins. But it wasn't merely his actions that impacted those around him. On a more fundamental level, it was the affections. His heart. Verse 3 tells us that Abijam, Rehoboam's son, walked in the sins of his father because his heart was not wholly true to the Lord like David's was. The heart drives the actions. The condition of the heart determines the walk of the feet. That's the description, the brief description of Abijam's leadership and its implications. And so verses 6 through 8 describe the sad pattern that gets repeated throughout Kings. He died. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam, between the north and the south. This this legacy of, of sin perpetuated itself. And yet there is another pattern here. It's a pattern that is intimated at in the verses that I have just read, and praise be to God, it is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture and even in our own lives. Because though the people were unfaithful, the Lord our God was not. He was true to His covenant. We see it in verse 4, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. The light of that lamp burns again. In verses 9 through 15, we pick up there now. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father had done. Not his father Abijam, but his father David. So in what sense was David his father? David was actually his great-grandfather. 
who's also his covenantal head. You know, we often speak in our nation about our founding fathers. Those founding fathers took certain actions that we benefit from. And so if you are an American citizen, you benefit from the work that they did, and in a sense, you are in them. Here's what I mean. None of us in this room signed the Declaration of Independence. But again, if you are an American citizen, you benefit directly from the work that they did, the risk that they took, the declaration that they made, and you, in fact, live as a free citizen. Their act of signing that document served as a covenantal act, and it covers us Today, you and I are in them, and they are our fathers. Asa was in David. Asa benefited from David's life, and more importantly, Asa benefited from God's covenantal promise to David. And that covenantal promise and David's obedience to that covenant had impact on the generations that were to follow. Asa was a beneficiary, but he also followed in the ways of David. He embraced on some level David's actions, but more importantly, he embraced David's love. Now that too is a gracious work of the Lord. That too was a work of of God's initiating, and it was one of the means by which God was keeping His promise to David. He gave Asa a heart of love. So Asa was a good son, a good son of David. But, But how was he good? Well, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see that in the passage that I just read on multiple fronts. First of all, He sought religious reform in Judah. He did so by reforming the practice of worship. You heard something, no doubt, that might have hurt your ears. You probably wondered, what in the world is he talking about? Male cult prostitutes. It seems that the people had had embraced the abominations of the nations around them. They engaged in some religious perversion of sexual activity, thinking that that would beseech the gods and goddesses of fertility to bless them. It was an abomination to the Lord. And Asa rightly put it away, whatever that means. But in addition to reforming the practices of worship, Asa reformed the objects of worship. You see, his father and his fathers had perpetuated this, this idol worship. And, and they had built these temples, these idols all around. Asa put them away as well. And then finally, he reformed worship by going after a surprising leader of worship. His own mother, maybe technically his grandmother, Maka, she served not only as his 
relation, but she served in a position of influence over the kingdom. She was the queen mother, but she too was a blatant idolater. She made an image to Asherah, and she had to go, and Asa had the strength and the courage to do so, to put her away and to destroy the image. Those were Asa's actions that we see in this text, but those actions they flow out of his heart. There's a direct contrast here in the description of Asa from what we read about Abijam. It's a contrast found in verse 14 that directly contradicts what is said of Abijam in verse 3. Verse 14 tells us that Asa's heart was wholly true to the Lord all his days. This is a thing for us to wrestle with today, and it's a thing for us, quite frankly, to see. We hear that, and we think, okay, he must have been perfect. But is that what the Scripture is telling us? He did things that were consistent with a heart for the Lord, but did he do them perfectly? No. So how do we see that in this text, and what does that tell us? We're, we're going to see it. In the next passage, verses 16 through 24, before we do that, I want to just ask you to bear with me. I'll acknowledge as we read this text, there's going to be a lot of funny-sounding names, and quite frankly, I'm probably not going to get them right, all right? I don't know them any better than you do. So for many of us, when we hear those names and we see the length of this passage, we're tempted to just shut down. We shut down because we don't understand. Let Let me teach for a minute. The reason we do this is because the Lord has a message for us in it. What I'm going to teach to you about this passage, you can find in in a basic study Bible. I'm trying to encourage you in your own study of the Word to power through and, and see where the Lord is taking us in these passages because He is teaching us something and He's teaching us something here today. And so we pick back up with the text. Follow along with me beginning in verse 16. And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that were left in the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and gave them into the hands of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you a present of silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Aijon, Dan, Abel, Beth-Makkah, and all Chinnereth with all the land of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and he lived in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah, none was exempt. And they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with Basha, with which Basha had been building. And with them, King Asa built 
Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Now the rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might and all he did and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? But in his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Let me try and explain all of that. There essentially was a political triangle that was taking place between Asa, the king of Judah, Basha, the king of Israel, and the king of Syria. But noticeably absent in that political triangle was the Lord. Let me try and illustrate for you for a minute what was going on in this triangle. Imagine for a moment that the king of North Alabama decided that he wanted to take over and invade Central and South Alabama. So, he took over Trustful first. Because in this imaginary illustration, I-59 is the only major thoroughfare into Birmingham. And so he set up a fortress on the hills overlooking the Pinnacle Shopping Center, looking down over the interstate, so that he could cut off the flow of goods and people in and from Birmingham. The king of Birmingham couldn't have all of this, and so he reached out to the king of Tennessee and said, I'm going to buy you off. And he gave him gold and silver, and so the king of Tennessee came in and invaded Florence and Huntsville and Coleman. The king of North Alabama heard about all of this and said, well, I've got to let go of Trustful so I can go and defend my flank. He left, and Birmingham was safe. In a sense, that is what's going on in this passage Basha, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, is trying to cut off Jerusalem. Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem on the major thoroughfare, and he decides to create an economic blockade. But the problem was, rather than depending on the Lord his God, Asa bribed the king of Syria. Now, here's the rub of it all. It worked. It worked, but that doesn't mean it was right. And it gave us a little bit of a window into Asa. He made an alliance with a pagan nation. And so that begs a question for us that might contradict what we've already heard. Was Asa really good? The record, quite frankly, is mixed. Verse 14 tells us that he did not remove the high places. That's one of the themes of sin throughout kings. He goes on, as we just heard, to make a political alliance with the king of Syria. And then there's this matter of his feet at the end. What in the world is that about? There are hints in this passage. If we go to the parallel passage in Chronicles, we'll see what's going on there is that With his diseased feet, Asa again did not rely on the Lord. He sought the exclusive help of the physicians. It all begs the question, what does it mean to be good? 
Is it merely a factor of our behaviors? We've heard of the good behaviors that Asa had, all of his reforms. Or could it be more? Could it be a question of our true love? In Luke chapter 18, Jesus got a visit from a rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler came to Jesus and he greeted him with a salutation, good teacher, to which Jesus responded, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus is pretty dramatically raising the bar on what it means to be good. And so the young man asked him, what do I need to do with an emphasis on the do? To inherit eternal life. In other words, the the rich young ruler is is seeking to justify himself, to justify his good behavior, and to hear from the good teacher all the things that he's doing right. So Jesus responded by giving him a list of five commandments. In the back half of the list of commandments, they're they're generally the commandments that, that are relating to our horizontal relationship with others. Rich young ruler, rather naively, I might add, said, oh, I've checked the box. I've done all of those. So Jesus ups the ante. He tells the rich young ruler, okay, go sell everything you own. Give to the poor and follow me. To which the rich young man sadly walked away. There's a lot more going on in that passage, and I'm not trying to preach Luke 18, but on some level, the man was looking for a set of behaviors he could follow to define his own goodness, but Jesus took him to the ultimate affection of his heart and asked him, was he willing to give up that thing which he loved most in order To love the Lord and follow Him with His whole heart. So Jesus defines goodness and obedience in terms of the deepest affections of our heart. Rather than simply in terms of our behavior. And what I hope you see is that is the message of 1 Kings. Yes, Asa did many good things, but those good things... We're offset by the bad things. So what's happening in this passage? Well, from a historical perspective, we see the message that Asa's reign is a mercy of God, as God is is fulfilling His promise to David by providing a king who would come after David, who, who, like David, would have many faults. Did you hear earlier in the beginning of the chapter when we heard that description of David, how he had followed the Lord except for that little matter with Uriah the Hittite. You know what that little matter with Uriah the Hittite was? He stole his wife and he had him killed. David was not a perfect individual and yet his heart was with the Lord. Asa, we see here, is not a perfect individual, but his heart is yet still with the Lord despite their many and glaring faults. David and Asa loved the Lord and were used by him to slow the tide of idol worship and to serve as the promised lamp in Jerusalem. And in so doing, they are a pointer to God's faithfulness. 
that is part of what we need to see in this passage. God is true when we are not. It's a theme that we have heard throughout 1 Kings. But also in this passage as we explore the story of Asa, there's a challenge for us here today to follow the Lord with our whole heart. Please understand. The message of 1 Kings and the message of this passage is not, I repeat, not be like Asa. It is not a behavioralism passage or a behavioralism sermon. First of all, we've already heard Asa still had many faults. But second of all, if we think that the call is to be like Asa, then that will separate our outward and external obedience from the deeper matter of the heart. I've shared with you all before how Michael and I have a mentor who oftentimes warns against raising well-behaved pagans. (laughs) Warning for parents, but let me understand what it means to raise a well-behaved pagan. I'm not using the word pagan as a derogatory slur. I'm simply talking about someone whose heart is not with the Lord, who is not in Christ. Now, we tend to think of a pagan as as someone who is wildly disobedient and is a provocative sinner, and that is at times the truth, but not always. You see, at times, pagans can be quite well-behaved, quite mannerly. They're pagans if their heart is not with the Lord, trusting in the Lord. It's a reminder for us today that our sin problem is indeed a problem, and our sin problem cannot be cleaned up by our own actions. It requires an external Savior. An external Savior who would come in and rescue us from ourself, from our sin, and from the wrath that is ours, rightly, due to our sin. A pagan is trusting in their own righteousness, whatever form that righteousness takes, even if They are blending in a little Jesus for good measure. The reality of the gospel is this. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But praise be to God, Christ alone and Christ only, everything. Christ alone is everything. Well-behaved pagans look good on the outside, but they either miss or deny the need for a new heart. The new heart that we even heard today is the assurance of grace, a new heart that is ours by grace alone as God reaches in externally and removes the heart of flesh. And in so doing, gives us the gift of faith that we might receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ. Well-behaved pagans are trusting in religious obedience with little regard for the deeper love of Jesus. But here's the other thing. 
about our using religious obedience as a litmus test for goodness. That's our litmus test. We're going to read this passage, and we're going to scratch our heads wondering what in the world is going on with Isa. He cannot be good because we see in him sin. We'll struggle to see the goodness in Asa because of all the failings that we have been describing. And yet, this passage has not only hinted at those uh, failings, we've, we've described them in, in greater detail, and if we looked again over to the parallel passage in Chronicles, we'll see them called out blatantly. Yet simultaneously, we see in this passage the declaration of Asa's goodness because his heart was wholly true to the Lord. How can the two coincide? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And I find in that description of Asa's heart, knowing his sin struggle, I find in it an incredible hope and comfort One that I hope and pray you hear as well because in that there is a clear and undeniable statement of grace because ultimately our goodness is in Jesus and in Him alone. In the Reformation, Martin Luther, he had a saying, and I don't know why all the Reformation sayings were in Latin, but this one is too, so I'll explain it. But his Latin saying captured so much of this meaning. Simul justus et peccator. Simultaneously just and sinner. Luther was not saying that just and sinner are simultaneously defining us. No, he was saying that in one sense, the Christian is simultaneously just, and in another and different sense, the Christian is simultaneously a sinner. The Christian is just because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to him, has been declared over him by the Lord God. That declaration is is a defining declaration. God makes us righteous by cloaking us with the righteousness of Christ. And yet, we know, we see it in Asa, we know it in ourselves, there is simultaneously a struggle with sin. That struggle with sin however, does not have the defining mark. It's a reality that we must put to death, but the defining mark is the righteousness of Christ that is ours by grace alone and is received by faith alone. Friends, cling to Christ. Cling to Christ as the gift of grace that is given to us by the God who removes our old heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh. What does this reality, what should this reality breed in us? Well, first of all, it's not a license to go sin. Instead, it's an invitation. It is an invitation to enjoy and to follow Jesus. It is an invitation to a deep and passionate love affair with our Savior. Because we're not justified based on our goodness. 
We're justified based on His righteousness. And that reality must breed within us a heart that is wholly true to the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, while there are important lessons for us to learn in this passage about what it means to walk in devotion to Jesus and about the generational impact of our faithfulness or unfaithfulness, the ultimate lesson is that there is only one who is good. And though we're called to walk in His ways, our only hope is trusting in the way that He has walked on our behalf. So Christ Church, let us be a people whose hearts are wholly devoted to Jesus. Amen? Father, we praise you for this word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit working through your powerful word, you would indeed grow in us a deeper and truer awareness of the blessings that we have in Christ. Would you fill us with the joy that is to be ours in that knowledge? Do so, we pray, in Christ's name, amen.